Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode, episode 60 of the Yellow Cup podcast, which is a fun and honest lifestyle and magazine podcast hosted by yours truly, your favourite journalist, Toby Rachel. You can expect conversations with no filter, ranging from social media trends to current affairs. Now, each episode will see me invite over a guest, who I like to call co-host, to join in with the conversation with me as we sip our yellow cups. Now, as it is a pandemic and I'm not really in the studio at the moment, so no actual yellow cups. I have to give that disclaimer. This week, I have with me author and professor Emily Bernard, who spoke to me all the way from Vermont. And it was an incredible conversation. And we are speaking off of the back of the release of Emily's book, Black is the Body, which is an extraordinary collection where Emily relays stories from her life that explore race as she has experienced it. So from her surviving a random stabbing, to teaching in a primarily white university, from introducing her white husband to her non-white family, to the difficulties in identifying where her home truly is. Now, this book is a bunch of essays, but it reads like a fictional book because I'm just like, how is all this happening to one person? And how am I learning so much about race and about identity and about sociology in, in one book? So each essay sets out to tell a story that puts wider conversations of race and identity into a lived perspective. It's absolutely incredible and I definitely recommend Black is the Body. Now in this episode we get reflective, we compare experiences and we see how irrespective of us living very different lives we've experienced similar things as black women um, in the diaspora. We also discuss her marriage, her interracial marriage. We discuss the Black Lives Matter movement that happened very recently. And more importantly, the use of the N-word and how our opinions have changed over the years. I really do hope you enjoy this episode and make sure you do get yourself a copy of Black is the body. You are now listening to Yellow Cup Podcast with Toby Rachel. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yellow Cup podcast, um, a place where it's free talking and all of that jazz. So today I have with me the author of a book that I've been um, very privileged to read. It's called Black is the Body by Emily Bernard. And um, at the top of the book, like the copy that I have, um, o Magazine, the Oprah Magazine said it's an extraordinary voice and personally I think if anything that Oprah owns says that it's an extra- extraordinary voice I'm definitely going to believe it but I've also read it so I want you guys to take um, my word on it as well but it's a, definitely an honour to have Emily, Professor Emily with us here today. Welcome Emily. Hello Toby, it's so wonderful to be here today. Thank you so much. How is it over where you are in the USA right now? Well, right now I'm looking at a beautiful, gentle snowfall outside of my window, but it's threatening to be, it's going to become a pretty dangerous snowfall. I was in the <laughs> early, young, young, beautiful stages before it matures into a violent storm. It's, it always amazes me, and I don't want to like sound too poetic, but it always amazes me how I'm so far away from people. I'm doing recording an episode. I'm here in London, and you're over there in the USA. We've just had snow as well, and you're having snow. How even distance, um, we can experience some of some very similar things. Um, that always amazes me, and I think that's it's, it's a theme that probably um, we'll talk about today as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, black is the body. Um, I remember... Um, I always think about like my journey into reading books and how I feel because when it comes to books that 
when it comes to books in general, okay, yes, there are quotes at the top telling me it's a great book, but I'm like, I've read so many books where they told me it was a great book and I'm like, "Mm, somebody was lying. Someone was lying. So I always try and like remember how I feel when I first like read the first couple of pages. And it's safe to say that you didn't really hold back in the first couple of pages. I wasn't expecting that beginning. Um, where you talked about a very traumatic experience um, having been stabbed and the way that you describe the experience really I felt like I was there um, and that I was actually you know I I could I could smell what you were smelling I could hear what you were hearing and I could almost when you said you know you kind of lost your hearing at some points I felt that's way too I, I so it was very incredible and I didn't expect to it wasn't fiction but I didn't expect to just be like am I sure I'm not reading fiction I had to be like is this a fictional book this didn't like how is she taking me there um I'm obviously going to get you to read an excerpt of the book later on but I before we get into that I just wanted to just touch on how you started the book because you started with a heavy topic and to just get into that why did you feel it was necessary for to, to start the book like that? Well, first of all, let me, let me thank you from the bottom of my heart because you're, you're singing my song and clearly you're my <laughs> ideal reader because, um, <laughs> you know, I really did want to create a sensory experience. You know, um, I wanted to bring the reader into my, my reality. Uh, I wanted to tell a story, you know, and I'll just say that um, one of the things that we were wrestling with at the outset, what to call the book, how to, how to market it, you know, and they, when I was talking with the, with the team about this, the idea of using the word stories in the title um, came up. And at first I was resistant because I really do think of myself as an essay writer, but there was some mm-hmm. concern among the marketing team that the word essay might be off-putting for readers who might see it as overly academic. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't want that at all. I, you know, this book I am, I, I teach, um, but I'm not in this book as a teacher. I am in the book as a human being, you know, a vulnerable human being who experienced, as you say, a violent attack that taught me a lot. So I wanted to really present myself to the reader as just a regular person um, Mm. with who has had to face down fears and face down a sense of my own um, vulnerability in the world. I mean, my literal vulnerability and the terror of being attacked uh, by a stranger with a knife. I thought, what else, how, what other moment in my life have I been that human? You know, mm-hmm. and I wanted to correct, connect with the reader on that level. I also didn't want, as much as that story, I still have to have a question about it. You know, is it, did this really happen? And in some ways, <laughs> that question is what is generating the essay. And one reason why I use newspaper accounts and hospital records and police records, because it is outrageous even for me, you know, and I was there that this happened. And, mm. you know, I think our, our brain plays those tricks on us to protect us, you know, from the reality of when we're in a really, really dangerous situation. And so going back through those materials, those relatively, you know, objective materials and trying to figure out where am I in this? Where do I exist? And I think Mm. there's some metaphorical way I was thinking about the history of black people, you know, wherever we ended up in the diaspora, who are we? Who is in control of the stories of our Mm -hmm. lives? You know, we've had to come up fighting, you know, we come to these shores and then we have to correct the false narratives about who we are. Mm-hmm. And so we're always composing ourselves and trying to sift through the official record to locate the human beings. And mm-hmm. in that way, I was, I was really reflecting on that as I was writing, thinking, how do you tell a true story about what happened to someone? You know, where do you find that objective truth? Does it exist? What is your mm-hmm. hand in shaping the story? And I wanted to sort of use that scaffolding or use those questions to hold the whole book because the book is very true account from my life, but I'm still shaping stories. And there's as much I want to keep to myself as I want to share with readers. And it's a constant battle, which I think is true for all of us. You know, when we are trying to tell the truth about our lives and who we are, we come up against all those sanctions about shaping the proper face. And I think for black people laboring under burdens of representation, you know, the sense that really, I think those of us who come from immigrant parents or, you know, we, we feel we sh- we're shouldering a family name, a family reputation mm-hmm. you know, in our bodies. You know, the way we could walk down the street and go to school, you know, your parents are telling you, 
I've, I've all the sacrifices I've made so that you can do this. And so mm-hmm. but where are we within that is what I was trying to get at. I think it's, that is a universal question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, I loved what you said about how, you know, this is a book of essays, but when I started it, I was like, this is not a book of essays, <laughs> but you know, your storytelling did definitely, um, educate me um in even just you know when you talk about you know you talking with your students and we'll definitely get into that um you being a professor and whatnot but there was um in the first chapter especially there was something that you described that happened in the hospital after you had you know um you had you had been taken in the ambulance and taken to hospital and it reminded me of something that I had been through and I didn't really think about it um so um very a, a lot I didn't really think about it a lot and reading that chapter definitely triggered it and this isn't no comparison to what you went through um I had a freak accident and I nearly lost my finger and um it basically got jammed I was 19 so it was 10 years ago and it got jammed in a gate and I was just like oh, okay that's weird and then everyone was like you're bleeding there's loads of blood and I was like what and there was just a lot of blood and I just don't remember how I ended up in the hospital, how I ended up in A&E and I wasn't in pain. Um, I wasn't in like immediate pain, but when the doctors finally saw me, and I was probably in A&E for about maybe 20 minutes, but it felt longer than that. And when I was finally seen and they had, my friends had wrapped up my finger and they had unraveled what they had wrapped up. And I saw that my finger was definitely in two pieces um barely hanging on together then the doctor started to touch my finger and I was in immense pain with how I was handled and how my body was handled and that's when I started to be in pain and you mentioned and I'd let you um tell your story rather than me just regurgitate your book um to the readers but I found it very interesting that you know you shared how it wasn't until a doctor saw you that, you know, you felt harmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that a lot of women, especially in the UK, black women are talking about how doctors don't really see them, see them as human, human rather than bodies and, you know, feeling mishandled. I don't know if that's what you were trying to get at when you shared, mm-hmm. when you shared that. Absolutely. I mean, they're absolutely related to what you're talking about. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's a truism here in the States with, you know, our very, let's shall we say, um, you know, our, our healthcare system, which which could use some fine tuning to say the least, uh, the truism I've heard uh, doctors tell me, if you want to stay alive, stay out of hospital. Stay. <laughs> that is the way to stay alive. Wow. And, um, you know, I am so, my father was a physician, so I don't have a kind of natural suspicion, I think, of doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I look to them for help, like many of us do, but I was in the hospital having, you know, endured this attack. And the doctor, the surgeon on call, walked up to me without speaking to me, without looking at me, and plunged uh, two fingers into my gaping wound. Now, what he was trying to do, you know, uh, medical uh, purpose was to find out if the sac that the sac that kind of protects your stomach, and if that was if that was lacerated, that then we'd have a real problem. So Mm -hmm. he needed to determine that, and I knew that that was at stake. but when I grabbed his hand instinctively, he looked at me with venom, you know, in his eyes and told me not to touch him. And I'll just I'll leave that to the readers. I think I set that scene, you know, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty accurately. But um, mm-hmm. that was definitely the worst part of the experience. You know, he and I and I, I think it would be foolish of me and really ahistorical um, to believe that what happened in that moment had nothing to do with race. You know, I, New Haven, where I was stabbed, is mm-hmm. a city... Um, with large numbers of black and brown population. And in fact, when I asked the, another doctor who came to see me, he told me, you know, well, he wasn't trying to excuse a physician, but he's trying to give me some context. He said, you know, he sees a lot of gunshot victims, you know, a lot of victims of, of knife, um, of knife injuries. And it's a, it's a, you have a poor place. And I thought, okay, what he's telling me is that he sees a lot of black and brown bodies in the, in, in this, emergency situation and I was just one of many you know you feel your vulnerability you know and Mm. and look at what happened to Serena Williams you know Mm. you feel reduced to just a body um Mm -hmm. at the mercy of you know you're in acute state I mean people how many people have said in the wake of what happened to Serena Williams you know 
what a fortunate thing that she had her wits about her in that moment to talk mm-hmm. back to the moment. And you think about so many people who don't feel they can assert themselves, you know, in the face of, you know, medical quote unquote science, right. Or the authority. Um, and they are rendered silent, you know, and rendered um, invisible and don't have the vocabulary to kind of fight back. But mm-hmm. I think that obviously Serena has such, you know, a kind of presence. I mean, um, and for me, growing up the daughter of, of a physician, I think, God, what if I had not had even the strength to, to, you know, to, to, to make visible to the nurses that I was in distress because I could tell the nurses around him were very shocked by what happened. But he right. had the power, you know, and so we were all kind of waiting and he just walked away. And I'll never forget that. It really was, you know, the, the man who stabbed me was uh, a, paranoid, a paranoid schizophrenic. You know, he was not in his right mind. Um, mm-hmm. He was not in his medication. And he was someone who, I mean, can I even say he was a victim too of, a, of, a, of an impersonal uh, bureaucratic decision to deinstitutionalize him. He was not well. Um, you know, we have the phenomenon in this country, people call it, call it suicide by cop. Uh, people who are so distressed and in such turmoil, they would rather be shoot, shot dead by the police. When he was, this man, when he was riding away on his bicycle, he was yelling out, shoot me, you know, please kill me. Some part of him knew that he was completely out of out of control and... Wow. You know, now I'm saying this with the compassion of someone who has survived, of course, and mm-hmm. no one else was killed. And I'm sure if, if the situation had, had gone differently, I, I, I might have a different reading of the story. But mm-hmm. it's, it's easy for me to understand um, because I sit here and I can, I can talk to you today. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for my life and that I'm here mm-hmm. and I can see that, you know, this man was suffering under a life sentence of, of, of his you know, diagnosis. But the, but the surgeon, I mean, there's no excuse for that. You know, there's no excuse for anyone with that kind of authority to be, to treat someone else so cruelly and with so little regard, um, for, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a lot of fear that night as much as pain. Mm. So it was, it was very instructive. You know, that was a, it was a moment. And now I tell you, I've gone back to the hospital a few times because I have, I developed adhesions in my bowel as a result of this incident. And I always tell that story <laughs> because I need to clear the space and make clear to everyone who's assisting me, you know, this is what I lived through. I lived through not only this incident, but also a surgeon who was really cruel. So I just need to make sure that that's not going to happen again, you know, Mm. Um, because that did stay with me and it makes me afraid for my children. You know, it makes me Mm -hmm. really afraid. And I, I, every time I, every time I go, I, I moved to Vermont 20 years ago and I'm really grateful to have a, a hospital nearby where I know enough of the staff. I've been I'm a frequent flyer, you know, as a result of the, the stabbing, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and um, it's important to me in my life to be, to be seen as hum- a human being. And it's not something that's guaranteed as we know, mm-hmm. you know, for black people to be seen as a human being really, mm-hmm. that is, that's a goal. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story because I think, you know, sometimes when we'd like people share stats and stuff like that, they're like, oh, it's just statistics. It's just numbers of black women saying that, you know, they aren't treated, treated as human in hospitals. But stories like yours and stories like Serena Williams and Beyonce, who shared, um, well, she said, she said somewhat of a similar story. Um, but Serena Williams more so. It, it does make it very more personable. Um, on that note, I would love for you to read another personal story. Well, I mean, the book is very personal anyway, even though it is essentially um, academic essays. I'd love for you to read another bit of the book, um, if you don't mind. Oh, um, yeah, just so people, can, who, people who are listening can get a good feel of the things that you talk about. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to read a section from an essay called Teaching the N-Word, which was, is actually the first essay that I ever published um, of this nature. And it's a it kind of revolves around a teaching situation, teaching a class of white students. The topic was African-American autobiography. So it's about my kind of moving in and out of my experience as a teacher, but also just a person in the world. So this scene takes place right after I've been on a radio interview uh, that was to promote my, my second book, which is called Some of My Best Friends, Writers on Interracial Friendship. And I come home and I'm, I'll, I, my husband, who is white, I, I will come home and tell him what happened in the interview. So this is an exchange between me and the woman, um, the host, her name was Janice. Are you, bi- are you biracial? No. Are you married to a white man? Yes. 
These were among the first words exchanged between me and Janice. I could tell by the way she looked at me and didn't look at me, by the way she kept her body turned away from me, by her tone that she had made up her mind about me before I entered the room. I could tell that she didn't like what she had decided about me and that she had decided I was a wrong kind of black person. Maybe it was what I had written in some of my best friends. Maybe it was the fact that I had decided to edit a collection about interracial friendship at all. When we met, she said, I don't trust white people, as decisively and exactly as if she were handing me her business card. I knew she was telling me that I was foolish to trust them, to marry one. I was relieved to look inside myself and see that I was okay. I was still standing. A few years before, her silent judgment, this silent judgment from any black person, would have crushed me. When she said that she could tell I was married to a white man, I asked her how. She said, because you are so friendly, and did a little dance with her shoulders. I laughed. But Janice couldn't help it. She liked me in spite of herself. As the interview progressed, she let the corners of her mouth turn up in a smile. She admitted that she had a few white friends, even if they sometimes drove her crazy. At a commercial break, she said, maybe I ought to try a white man. She was teasing me, of course. She hadn't changed her mind about white people or dating a white man, but she had changed her mind about me. It mattered to me. I took what she was offering. But when the interview was over, I left it behind, along with a microphone and sound effects and words from our sponsor. John thought my story about the interview was hilarious. When I got home, he listened to the tape they gave me at the station. He said he wanted to use the interview in one of his classes. A few days later, I told him what Janice said about dating a white man, that she won't because she is afraid he will call her the N-word. As I told him, I felt an unfamiliar shyness creep up on me. That's just so far out of my... It's not in my head at all. He was having difficulty coming up with the words he wanted, I could tell. But that was okay. I knew what he meant. I looked at him sitting in his chair, the chair his mother gave us. I can usually find him in that chair when I come home. He is John, I told myself, and he is white. No more or less John, and no more or less white than he was before the interview. And Janice's reminder of the fear that I had forgotten to feel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that was um, a part of the book that stuck out to me um, the most. I felt like it was, even though, you know, throughout the book and especially at the beginning, you're very bare and it's, you know, very naked, so to speak. I felt like talking about this dynamic of your relationship with other Black women and their perception of your marriage to a white man. I thought that was very brave. I'm not married myself. And if I, but if I ever did marry um, a white man, I wonder if I myself would be able to just articulate these things on how I'd feel about it. Because um, some people are just, oh, just mind your business. There's nothing to discuss here. Love is love. Um, why did you find it important to just, you know, talk about your interracial marriage? Well, it's a, it's a great question. It's so funny, you know, we, you know, the, uh, many years divide us. And I, I think when I was your age, I absolutely felt the way you feel. And I don't know mm -hmm. that. And now to, to hear you talk about that and to remember exactly all the questions that you have and to be in this marriage now for 20 years, as I write in another essay, you know, marriage is marriage. And I had a friend uh, ask me and it's the essay, I think it's in Interstates, a friend, which is really about my marriage, and a friend of mine who is not neither black nor white, um, she said to me, she asked me at a reunion, 20-year reunion from college, she said, what is that like to be married to a white man? And I write that John had taken my keys to take the, our kids to a museum, and I thought, it's the same as being married to a man who has a keys to your car, <laughs> when you really want, <laughs> you know, it's it's just a marriage, you know, and <laughs> You know, but, but the, at the time, I, re I remember being young and looking, you know, at interracial couples and thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, look at that. But, um, you know, then you live a life and it's just paying bills and making each other laugh. Um, we have, you know, very similar sense of humor and, and a very similar way of thinking about race and identity. John and I, we always say that the biggest kind of divide between us is not around race or even gender, but class. You know, it's mm. the invisible kind of 
topic or identity factor we don't talk about as much in this country, you know, mm. but it's, it's very real. I, I come from, you know, as I told you earlier, my father was a physician. My mother also had um, a, a medical degree and John's parents who are immigrants from Italy did not finish high school. Neither of them did. Mm. Um, so around expectations around education and college, you know, were really different for both of us. So we, we enjoy kind of marveling at these differences and when they pop up, you know, um, we like to discuss them. I think that it was, it's been different at every, our marriage has been different at every stage, you know, mm-hmm. our interracial marriage, you know, it's, it's one thing, of course, you join with another person and, and you're young and then kids come and that, sh- that shapes the way you think about each other and your family unit suddenly expands. And I think that, my kids and they're as teenagers now, um, you know, I'm the, I, they come to me. John always says that I'm, I'm in charge of feelings and grooming and he's in charge of everything else. <laughs> so they'll, they'll come to me when they need to, you know, I need some mom, I need to know some new bath wash. And also let me tell you about, you know, this other problem. But, um, you know, they, they, I, I think about that, about um, the challenges, you know, in a marriage that do shift as you, take on new roles in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, you know, you got two human beings trying to figure it out together. I think that there are people who could probably not en- ever enjoy or even endure a marriage across a racial divide, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just something that they understand about themselves or come to understand sometimes tragically, sometimes they're okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that That's just not for them. But I think for John and me, it was always who we were. I think we we're always interested. John's dating history includes, you know, quite a bit of, of women of color. It's just, that's just the road he traveled. And for me, going through the situations that I grew up in, I've also had a kind of diverse, you know, cast of characters in my, in my dating life. So, it was, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a terrific stretch for us to make, to, to find mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I think that the, the class difference it has shaped us and actually sometimes breeds some resentment i think that my sense of entitlement you know when it comes to for instance going to doctors um you know i'll, I'll take the girls to a doctor and john will remind me when he was a, when he was a young person you know you didn't just go to the doctor you know but because i'm used to um that and grew up with that mm-hmm. i'm not intimidated you know by those that kind of title right, right. um so it's it's we find it interesting but there, of course, is always, I think anytime you, you know, create an intimate relationship with someone, there's always something that you leave behind, you know, it's mm. just part of life. So um, there are, of course, he's still, you know, a, a, you know, a cis, cisgender, heterosexual white man. Um, our experiences in the world are distinctly different. I mean, you said beautifully in the beginning, here we are, you know, and it's evening where you are and it's afternoon mm-hmm. here and I'm in Vermont. And the same is true when John and I are just walking down the street, you know, I mean, our relationship to just be, and you know, he's a, he's a, a, an intimidating looking white guy. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. get harassed, you know, he doesn't get, you know, he, he, people get out of the way and he doesn't even notice it because of course that's a privilege of kind of belonging in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I have a different relationship to the world as a woman, as a, as a black American. Mm. So it's, we, we, we talk about it. It's not that it's always easy, but it's always worth it. You know, he's the most right. interesting person I've ever, I've ever met. So, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not, that it's not difficult and that interracial relationships sometimes are not really challenging because mm-hmm. no matter what, how much you talk and how much you love each other, we occupy these very different places in the world, you know, particularly in our country right now, which is being, well, you know, what's going on, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the divide has never been more, dramatic and mm-hmm. we are black and white and male and female but there's we're a family you know yeah. we're also yeah. family mm-hmm. yeah and it, yeah like you said um you know there's a lot going on, on in america and it's similar over here in the uk um and it, i found it really intriguing on social media that um and just even like discourse amongst celebrities which is how people come across this course nowadays but you know like some interracial celebrities being like oh this is the first time we're talking about race in our house do you think that maybe it was easier for you because obviously John's profession is very similar to yours he's a professor in African American studies I believe I I think I got that correct um yeah and so you kind of know already that you know he's not ignorant 
to yeah. to the topic was it was that easier for you because you obviously clearly would have discussed race because you taught similar topics yeah I, absolutely i think it made it it made it easier to to talk to him and to fall in love with him because we had you know we had these similar pa- passions we had common passions but but at the same time you know i think what i felt as a young person that in a way, you know, I took myself too seriously. I think that's one of the gifts of, of getting older is that you sort of take yourself less seriously because you realize it is really just one life. You don't have to carry it all on your shoulders, you, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was young, I thought I would be betraying black men. I would be betraying, you know, the race and expectations of my ancestors. And then I get older and again, it's, it's just a marriage, you know. And mm. um, for me, I think not only because we had professional interests in common, did it make it easier to fall in love with him and similar values, of course, you know, about around raising children, our attitudes about our, our, our aging parents, those are fundamental. You know, mm-hmm. um, I saw in my mother's marriage, my mother married my father. She's American. My father's from Trinidad and her father was so unhappy with her when she married a foreigner, he said, <laughs> and this is a man who had traveled. You know, he was in the army, and he, but he really he just he objected to my mother. He didn't come to the wedding because my mother oh married my a foreigner. So in some ways, it's my legacy, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> you know, so I so it made it possible, I think, to think about you know doing something different than the family script might have predicted. Yeah. But I think you know, but I think to think about making a marriage with someone, um, having those core values were so were important to me. And they do, they are, they are more durable than, than any kind of differences around race. And, you know, as I get older, those values are the things that we, that, that, that shape our marriage, you know, not, 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 um, not race. It really isn't, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, we live in the world as social subjects, but then we live Mm. in our house and our lives, you know, we live as people who love whatever series you're watching on HBO, you know, people, you know, that's who we are in our intimate spaces, you know, Mm. people who love this kind of food or I like this kind of, you know, my coffee this way. And that's who we really are. My husband and I together, you know, we're we're raising our teenage daughters who, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they are, they say things to me now. They'll say, they say, well, I'm not, I can never marry a white man. I just, my daughter actually said the other night, I couldn't marry a white man. I just don't find them very attractive. (laughs) Your dad's right here. And he's just kind of nodding. (laughs) That is hilarious. Um, yeah. But then she'll say, well, maybe, she goes, I could marry maybe an Italian man. But see, that's because for her, again, that, that whiteness is like the social cat, you know, thing that's happening outside of the house. But mm. in the house, their dad's Italian and he loves this and they can, you know, distinguish all these kinds of pastas that I think most Americans have any clue, <laughs> you know, because this is what their, their the culinary landscape is. It's, and, mm-hmm. and it really has shaped them. So, mm. um, but, you know, so whiteness is, I think, for us as a family, it's like sort of out there, you know, but inside the house, we're just these four people. Mm. Yeah, that's that is absolutely amazing. I noticed something while you were reading um, the part of the book. Um, while I read the book, you know, you write the word N-word in full and you've got, you know, a whole chapter on teaching the N-word, which I thought was absolutely incredible. But I noticed that you didn't necessarily say that there was one thing wrong or right when it comes to the n-word and who can say it but more so you were on a journey and you know helping your students explore uh there was parts of it that I found uncomfortable I was like why are these why is this one white student saying the word in full he keeps saying it I was just like stop saying it um but I noticed that when you um because for me, I have a very emotive response to the N-word, but you weren't emotive about it. You, you kind of took a vantage viewpoint. However, when you read the um, parts of the book now, you said the N-word opposed to saying the word actually in full. Um, yes. um, why is that? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd love to tell you. Well, you know, I, it's, I, as I said, that, that I say I wrote it in, you know, a long time ago and... Um, I think I honestly had a different relationship to that word, you know, mm. and that's again, a, the beauty of life, you know, is growing and changing. Um, and at, at the time, right in the essay, I was really working on, I mean, I think the essay really is a portrait, if nothing else, of my own struggle around my relationship to the word and mm-hmm. to white people enunciating the word and what was my philosophy around it. Um, and I wanted, as you said, I, I deliberately, refrained 
from giving an answer. You know, I, I, I wrote, I am a teacher by nature and profession, but in my creative work, I'm, I'm just a human being. And I am more of a student, a learner than I am a teacher on the page. I mean, certainly I, I want, I think there are lessons I want to share in the book, but I didn't want to talk from down up a high. I didn't want to talk down to anyone. I wanted this, the essay to be almost a maze, which I think is what that word is in our culture. You know, I think that we have a lot of things we have not worked out around language and, you know, authority. Mm. These, uh, who gets to say what? I mean, these are things I think plaguing us, at least in the States right now. You know, who has the right to say what? And I think that, you know, the, the, the bottom line is, is, you know, don't say it. If you have a question about it, don't say it. Um, you know, but it keeps coming up on this side of the pond. You know, mm-hmm. someone will say it and then they have to, then they'll apologize and they have to go on Oprah and they have to say they're sorry. And then, you know, they may or may not be able to revive their career. And that mm. my essay was really written out of a exhaustion with that, you know, and saying, let's just really tease this out because um, we have a relationship to it. Mm-hmm. And let's unearth that because the lectures aren't getting us anywhere. As a culture, we just keep going round and round. You know, and there's a lot of hypocrisy, I think, kind of embedded in the way we talk about uh, language itself. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to reveal that. I wanted to portray that as opposed to give, I mean, there's some great lectures that you can find everywhere. You know, there's a lot of really important thinkers have, have important ph- philosophies around that, that word, but I wanted to come mm-hmm. to the conversation with stories but as I've gotten older, you know, I've had, there's been a couple of incidents. In fact, that around this book, I gave a reading early in the life of this, the public life of this book. And it was a mostly white audience. And I was reading from the introduction where I do also spell out the word. And as I looked up, I saw a young, a teenage boy, a black boy um, who lives in Vermont and his family's white. And we locked eyes as I was reading and I, I did not feel good, you know? And so then oh. sort of met, met, right? It, note to self. And of course I could, I mean, I have been him, you know, the, the sole black person and then I you know, I just thought, Oh gosh, I, I don't like having delivered that to this kid. Mm-hmm. And then when I, it was time for the Q and a, a white woman in the audience said the word in the way that I said uh-huh. it. You know, she, she, yeah. Right. I mean, she was referencing uh-huh. what I said. So I thought, okay, I opened that door and it was as if, an electric shock had gone through the room. So there was sort of, okay, that's the second clue. And then at the end, um, when I was signing books, a black woman came up to me. I hadn't seen her. She was sort of tucked away. Um, and she, we embraced because we always often do in Vermont, you know, you see a black person, you fall into their arms. And so, <laughs> you know, she said, I was really having a great time at this reading. And then when the white woman said that word out loud, I just, it just ruined the night for me. Mm. And I thought to myself, okay, that's it. I'm not going to, it's not worth hurting people. Mm. I just, I'm not going to, I'm not, at this stage of my life, I, I, I don't want to be an agent of, of pain. You know, um, it's just not, not worth it to, to make any kind of academic or intellectual point. I just think mm-hmm. why not be sensitive, uh, especially again, in our fraught political climate around, around this language, you know, I, uh, and I always, whenever I, I gave readings or did talks that involved that, that word, it, I always shifted according to my audience. You know, I gave a talk and there were lots, let's say there were lots of uh, uh, particularly older black people in the audience, I, I would always say the N word. Um, even though I do, I think on a, on a deep level, feel very ambivalent about uh, even that phrase, you know, but I, I would say that because I, I don't want to read I mean, the, the point is that word is that it's, it's rhetorical violence. You know, there's never anybody who was called that. I always tell my students, you know, no one who was ever lynched, you weren't lynched being called Mr. Jones, you know, you know what I'm talking about? So language is important and really for black people. So we just have to reckon with that. And I think that mm-hmm. we have to understand that no matter what your intentions are, the world, the word carries that history. Mm-hmm. And so I think I just decided at this moment in my life that it, it, it causes too many people pain. And as you say, you know, you hear it and you really experience it. Um, you know, my husband actually wrote something about, you know, sound, I remember this, I think this is his line, you know, it enters the body. You know, it, it recalls a host of memories and associations. And I just don't want to be an agent of, of, of anguish, you know, for, I think that I can make my point without having to say that word. And I'm not, mm-hmm. it would never, you know, I think that language does change and a relationship to it does change. And particularly young people, artists, 
it's your job to push the boundaries. You know, it's your job mm. to push the boundaries of what's accepted. That is what art is meant to do. But as my stage in life and where I am as an artist, um, that's the, the, the work around that word, I think, is someone else's work. You know, I think I've sort of said what I needed to say about it. And my essay is really, I think, an invitation for the reader to figure out for yourself. Mm. You know, early in my career, when I would have, there'd be, you know, that <laughs> you read about, you know, a white student would say, why can't I say it? And I would say, well, you know, you can say whatever you want. I mean, theoretically, this is a free country. Now, there are consequences for what you say. There are. <laughs> so it's your choice. <laughs> but just, you know, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of, um, that you're excused uh, from culpability, mm. that you're excused from, you know, accountability. Um, and that's part of being an adult, right, is accepting the consequences of things we say and do. But I think for me, I've, I've said all I can say around that word, and I, you know, I think there's, there, there are a lot of lessons uh, around um, around language that we have yet to really learn in this culture. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. That is very interesting. So, like, what you said something just now. You know that you kind of like your job is to teach and to help people figure figure it out kind of for themselves and I remember reading it and I had to confront myself on where I stood with the word because I've always said it's not a word that I would use but I would never like condemn another black person for using it especially yes. as someone who is black British and we have a very di we have similar histories but a different history but the same thing applies the word is hurtful and you know in the UK we've had a lot of discourse in mainstream media regarding the word because the BBC had used the word twice in one day um, over the summer and I had to think about the word again and I am I'm almost I, I never want to get to a place where I'm policing other black people on how they use sure. the word but I definitely mm -hmm. definitely will not be using that word um from now on honestly unless I am in I get casted in an Oscar award-winning movie and my character <laughs> absolutely necessarily needs to say the word I just I just I have I just feel no need to ever say the word to make a point like if I say the n-word you know exactly what I mean like yeah. we all at this point know what the n-word means um yeah. so yeah I thought that um the chapter in the entire book definitely served its purpose um in that um, on the note of me being a very proud um, African, second generation, kind of first generation, my mum was born here, my dad migrated from Nigeria. Um, you, um, yourself and your husband, you decided to adopt um, two African um, girls. Um, and I would love to know um, how they're doing today, but more so what it's like raising African young women in America and you know how do they see themselves as African-American I don't know if you can speak on their behalf but I'm sure you've had these conversations <laughs> oh yes daily mm -hmm. um you know they and yes they do you know and I wrote that this book is you know a portrait there's snapshots so in some ways not even a full portrait you know of my life um and when I was writing the essays about my daughters you know they're much younger and necessarily their I, identities were still in their early stages and they're only 15 now but i have noticed in fact these days they talk about themselves as if they have no other history you know my daughter will say we were brought here as slaves i'll say you weren't you know <laughs> you actually were first class back from you know ethiopian airlines so but but you know she she speaks in the in the kind of racial collective and mm -hmm. I, I i love it you know it makes me very happy i think that um the alternative would be for them to feel completely detached from black experience and that would be hard for them. So mm -hmm. I think it's good that they do feel very identified with, you know, kind of black American experience. And obviously we're very close. So there's a way in which, you know, my, my stories become their stories. It's what mm -hmm. we do cannibalize our parents, you know? Um, but they also, so I'm always fighting for them to remember they have this amazing, I'm envious, you know, this incredible history they have and this connection to this beautiful ancient place. Mm. Um, I, I just, I, I think that's such a wonderful thing. And I'm sure as they get older, it'll become more and more valuable to them. But at this point, they are quintessentially American kids. You know, they have their, their iPhones and they love K-pop. You know, those <laughs> things that are oh, on their gosh, minds. Yeah, they're, definitely, you know? <laughs> they're definitely teenagers if they love the teenagers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, they are, that's the stage they're at, but they see themselves as very, but, you know, I think that that is one reason in my book, you know, there's such a, to, to be black in this country 
the, 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 there's an appetite in our culture for black pain. So it's what the mm. media, you know, it's, it's what the media eye is trained on right mm. now for good reason, right? We, and we need these stories. We need the videos. We need the evidence. We need the photographs. They're important documents. You know, there's too many people in this country, many white people who are awake for the first time to the realities of, of, of and that's because there have been these courageous witnesses who've taken videos and photographs, mm. you know, so people, more people are aware. But at the same time, I always worry that we are being reduced to those photographs. You know, from the moment of, there's a famous photograph that circulated among abolitionists um, during the Civil War of a, of a man, his name was Peter. He actually was a soldier for the Union Army, but his back is exposed and you see this, you know, crisscross of lashes. Mm. And the picture worked in the same ways that the video of George Floyd worked. Mm-hmm. You know, it worked to galvanize people, to enrage them, to inflame mm-hmm. them, to encourage them to, you know, commit their own bodies to yeah. black liberation. But the, we also are black in our daily lives, in our quiet lives, you know, in our the mundane acts we perform. Blackness is not just about spectacle and about protest and about taking a public position. You know, it's also about our vulnerability and, you know, our contradictions, our worries, our fears. And that's what my book is really trying to honor. You know, the everyday aspects of our lives as as human beings who are black, Mm. black human beings who walk our dogs. You know, we have fights with our friends um, and we make everyday discoveries just like any other human being. So my book is really trying to honor, you know, when I think about the the books that have saved me. I uh, think about Maya Angelou, uh, The Rights of Watching God. It's not only these mm. incredible stories of black resilience, but the human human portraits, you know, human beings, um, you know, and the fascinating ways that we, we live every day. That, that, that's really what captures my imagination. So mm. I wanted my book to kind of, again, be to join the conversation around identity um, and the narrative of blackness in this country but to, to come at it in that place of that almost place of just quiet, ordinary living, you know, which is mm. the truest portrait of my own life. Amazing. Amazing. Um, I, th- I thought it was beautiful what you have to say about your daughters, especially at the moment. There is this huge conversation about whether, you know, black British actors should play iconic, um, you know, uh, iconic members of history like Fred Hampton or Harriet Tubman, especially because they're African-American. And just to kind of like, just hear, I don't know if you deliberately did this, but, you know, talk about how unified we are as black people in the diaspora. Mm. I'm not sure. I don't Mm. want to put words into your mouth at all. Absolutely. But that's, that's the, yeah, that's what I I got from that. I mean, Mm. actually just, I would love to know your thoughts actually on what you think about that discourse before Mm. we round off um, regarding uh, black Brits playing, um, yeah. African-American icons. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I, you know, I fully support it. I, I fully support it. I think that if we start as Black people, um, you know, deciding, trying to police each other, you know, as you were saying earlier, I'm with you around language and the N-word, I say, have at it. <laughs> you know, I say, <laughs> you know, yes, we are in a battle around language and, you know, let's, I want to see what other people do. I'm more interested in what Black people have to contribute than I am interested in silencing anyone. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we can become, and, and for black Americans, I always feel that one, one, one thing we haven't contended with is that we are, we are products of the soil right here to labor, you know, but we are constantly being told we're out of place. Mm-hmm. So we have to construct our homelands. We have to construct our ancestry um, of course, a lot is changing with 23andMe and we could do genealogy. Mm. And that, yeah. I think, has radically changed, you know, life for ordinary people. But still, our story is embedded in this larger American story that we have a hostile relationship to. And that was not our invention, right? That was foist upon us. So we're making our way in this hostile, rocky soil. But I think that in that effort to kind of constantly create and protect and safeguard that space of blackness, we can create unproductive boundaries and keep other black people out. So that discourse, which I reject, I'll just be honest, 
that black birds cannot play, you know, part that, that to me seems, seems unnecessary and unproductive. Mm. Um, I think that that is a little bit, that insularity is, is, is part of a larger pr- problem with American, I think, insularity, you know, and, th- and, and literally protecting boundaries and borders, which I really reject because I am an American. I, I do not want to be part of that discourse at all. You know, who can come mm-hmm. in, who can't, I don't want to be part of it. So I don't like to replicate that. I don't want, I don't want to see it replicated, you know, among mm-hmm. black people. Uh, I understand why, because we feel that we have so little we have to protect, but I think that it becomes, it can become so insular and the lines keep getting tighter and tighter. I've even heard my daughter, you know, sort of now people are being ridiculed, you know, you're too light skinned to do this and that. And I'll tell my daughters, you know, sometimes people who are, you know, light skinned suffer more as black people because they have to put up with more, you know, they're not recognized um, as black and that could be a terrible burden to carry. Mm. So I, I think that if it, I think it's a problem for black people if we become consumed with creating boundaries around blackness and who is purely, who is authentically black. That's a losing game. And we've seen that happen, you know, historically with every generation, there's been that push, you know, we, it gets tighter and tighter, these boundaries. And we just end up, we just lose as a people, you know, we have been, our stories are embedded in so many other stories. And I would rather see us embrace that mm-hmm. than to try to create boundaries um, and say, keep out. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much. And thank you for also, um, appearing on the yellow cup podcast it's absolute honor um just let my readers know where they if you are on social media um where they can find you or just any other bits of you online if they want to read more of your work and where they can get the book from oh fantastic well my website is emilybernard.com and i hope that your readers will see that it's the uk cover i was really pleased with the colors it did a gorgeous job and it's a testament to this to the book taking flight you know um the UK. And so there's my website. I'm on Twitter at Emily E. Bernard and I'm on Instagram at Bernard Emily. And I'd love to see you. you. I'd love to talk and take questions or anything. Like, you know, I'd love to be connected to your readers. Definitely. I'm going to make sure that everyone who listens, I implore you to definitely take part in the conversation, um, get you, get a copy of the book um i'm a very harsh critic when it comes to book and i'll definitely say um to definitely get this one and thank you very very much thank you so much i really appreciate it thank you you are now listening to yellow cup podcast with toby rachel